This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 5th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 247 of Defender Radio. She's traveled the world under the National Geographic Explorer banner. She's created paintings that have defined movements for animal welfare. She's designed Fabergé eggs that helped support anti-poaching efforts. And she's coming to the 2015 Living with Wildlife Conference in Vancouver. Asher Jay is a designer, artist, writer, and activist who uses creative concepts and design to advance animal welfare, sustainable development, and humanitarian causes around the world. From laying in a tent surrounded by lions to photographing the busy streets of New York City, her experiences have given her a unique perspective on all of these issues. Asher joined Defender Radio recently to talk about her past, her passion, and why she's excited to be speaking at the 2015 Living with Wildlife Conference on October 16th. Let's uh, let, let's get started with, with our interview, and I think the best place to start with this one is, is at the beginning. So, what came first for you, a love of wildlife or a love of art? Um, for me, I think the first was a love of wildlife, but I've always had art as an implicit part of my upbringing, um, not just in terms of exposure, but also, you know, always been given access to creative materials. Um, and I think my mum has always encouraged me to produce things as opposed to destroy things. And so if I wasn't bringing animals home that fell out of trees or uh, were abandoned by their parental units, then I was busy, you know, doing decoupage or painting something at home. I've always just been a creative individual who cared about environmental issues. And at what point, though, did that become more than what you enjoyed as a child and more than maybe what you were exploring as a teenager? When did you say, this is going to be my life? I didn't say that until very recently, actually. Um, it was when, when the BP oil spill happened that I had this clear understanding of what my life's work would be from there on out uh, and on what I needed to do every day. And I don't think I had that level of clarity growing up, even though I was always exposed and participating in one way or the other in conservation efforts. I just didn't feel as emotionally empowered, as uh, creatively inspired until that particular moment. And I think the, the, the shift was because it was overwhelming and the scale at which the devastation was happening was um, hard for me to fathom. And I figured by the time I grew up that somebody would have taken care of these things, you know, that it would stop happening and stop being a part of my life's reality. <laughs> and I would stop being emotionally debilitated by it at the very least. But when I grew up and I realized there was no somebody else, that I was that somebody else I was looking for, um, I figured I needed to pull it together and just find a way to help. And it started out a little unclear because, I had a skill set, but I wasn't entirely sure how to transition from being a designer in the fashion industry toward working in wildlife conservation <laughs> at the age of 25, uh, 26. And so it was just, you know, a blind leap of faith. Um, I just decided to get out there and start trying. Because if you don't give it a shot at some point in your life and you always think somebody else is going to be able to pick that up for you, 
I think you're just uh, waiting for a day that will never come and waiting for a person that will never manifest. And so, you know, I didn't want to spend my life in a futile manner. And so I just decided to to take that train to Washington, D.C., knowing everything that I knew from watching C-SPAN and reading all the reports that came out and journals that came out. And I realized I had a lot of information that I wanted clarity on. And when I asked questions to the authorities and to people who were in the know, from scientists to explorers, they didn't have answers for me. And when the conference ended, uh, it was with, actually at the TEDx oil spill that I met Sylvia Earle, Carl Spina, and a couple of other people. Um, and when I asked them some questions, they said, I want to talk to you after we're done. And they chatted with me and they realized that I had a unique passion for this. And the way in which I was visualizing it was was something that hadn't been done before because I had managed to hit the nail on the head with just a single image. Um, and Sylvia all told me at that point, you know, a, a painting is worth a thousand words, but a picture like this is worth a thousand paintings. And I think what she meant by that was I was able to condense really complex information into something that was so obvious that no one could dispute it that you just got what was happening and it was a truth as opposed to something that was left open to interpretation. And it's because I had distilled the story to its most um, simple elements and silhouettes and contrasting just what is and what isn't, you know. And, and I think if you just give people the very simple aspects of what is happening in the world around them in a vocabulary that anybody, whether it's a two-year-old toddler or like, you know, an adult, that when they look at it, they can make things out. They can figure out what's happening. I think that's empowering people and that's getting them in the know, which allows them to participate in a conversation that is otherwise inaccessible to them. Your work that I've seen a lot of uh, now has to do with uh, uh, wildlife trafficking and endangered species. Um, uh, there's, there's one, uh, I believe it's a painting of a tiger um, that's, that's very stunning. Um, what is it about that i mean the the bp oil spill i remember when that happened as well and it it was very just in terms of the media coverage very captivating uh because it was very visual you know you see mm -hmm. the the helicopter circling the boats trying to cordon it off you see the 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 oil hitting the shore you see the the animals being impacted um but with a lot of these other uh issues it seems very distant, particularly to those of us living in a place like Canada or, or New York City, um, where most of the wildlife we're, we're going to see is, you know, at the biggest, maybe a bear. Um, so how did you... Well, in New York, it would be a rat. <laughs> <laughs> well, those those can be the size of a bear, I understand. Yes, <laughs> very well be a size of a bear. Um, actually, the thing was, you know, it took me a while to get to a wildlife trafficking. And the reason why... Is because it is, like you say, very hard for a person who lives in the city environment to visualize it or even come to terms with what is happening. And part of it is that the imagery and video content that's put out in regards to any sort of poaching incident is so horrific that you just cannot bring yourself to look at it. It's so repugnant that you cannot visually consume that information. And so you just turn it off, you know, you shut down as opposed to listen or pay attention. And so it was only a lot, like somewhere along 2012 that I began to think about the fact that we were losing so many elephants, one every 15 minutes, and rhinos at an even more appalling rate. Um, and I figured that there had to be a way in which I could show people what was happening 
where they wouldn't look away and they would understand it is something that has to be addressed as opposed to being, you know, put into a mode of denial. And so I created two images and at that point I had no idea how to, you know, put it out in the public. I had no clue as to who would care to look at it. And so just as a social experiment, I uploaded an image which has now become one of the two most iconic works that I've created. Um, the blood horn and the blood ivory uh, image, which is just basically an elephant silhouette and a rhino silhouette in black with a blood tusk that is made entirely out of elephants in red. And it shows that, you know, every tusk costs a life. And the same thing with the rhino horn. The rhino horn is made out of a composite of other rhinos, um, all in red. And so the red and black against the white background was just very stark and it was arresting, but not in a way where you felt um, completely disgusted by what was happening. And so you could look at it and understand, you know what? Yes, this is a part of my reality. And there, there needs to be actions, concrete actions that are taken, uh, particularly to respond to consumer demand. And so when several organizations at that point saw it, they started sharing around, sharing the image around on social media or on Facebook particularly. And it wasn't until three months later that I saw it had, you know, culminated to the point where people were tagging me on social media streams and letting me know anywhere from between 40,000 shares on a given day to like a thousand shares here and somebody using it as their cover photo and it just went viral. And a while later, I got a call from uh, an organization in Africa and she's like, I'm looking at this image on a child's computer. Is this your work? And it happened to be Joyce Paul from Elton Voices. And um, and so then I wound up working with her and creating two campaigns for for elephant voices that would cast light on what was happening in regards to the disintegration of the social fabric of elephants because you're not just losing individuals, you're losing the entire social structure because they live in large families. And what is happening is a thinning out of the matriarchs and all the big elephants. And so the young ones have no clue how to navigate that landscape, where their resources are, where they need to be at a given time of year, um, how to take care of their young. They have no skill set, no knowledge set being transferred from the elders because the elders are being poached. And so um, I created one visual for that, and the other one was to, again, address the idea of uh, the Chinese market being the primary consumer area for, for ivory. And so um, we ran these campaigns in an open source format for about two, two years. Um, it was run on banners and people marched with it. So it was a very decentralized approach where people would, you know, write me a day, on a given day and tell me that they've tattooed this artwork onto themselves because they felt that it spoke to them. But more importantly, it helped them extend their voice in the world uh, and feel empowered, like that something was allowing them to vocalize how they felt. And so when when you see young people, old people alike marching with the, the artwork that you've created, you realize that your image is no longer just about what you're putting out in the world. It's not art for art's sake. It's about the fact that the art can become somebody else's moment of expression and that they can connect through the same, same way of articulation but feel like it's coming from them. You know, So it's really just empowering individuals through visual vernacular, visual media. Uh, and that's kind of what it's come come out to be. What what I do is entirely around that now. It's about campaigning and getting people to feel empowered and and enabled. Um, and so I, I can need to do it. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? 
protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from National Geographic Explorer and Living with Wildlife speaker, Asher Jay. Now, there, there's a story I read uh, in, in my brief research prior to our talk today uh, that I find very interesting regarding a, a incident with a tent in Barafu. I don't know. I'm probably pronouncing that way wrong. Um, yes, Barafu. Uh, Barafu. Okay. Um, it, it sounds like it's spelled amazingly. Um, and... I, I'll ask you for the story, but I, I want to code it in the fact that typically people who come close to uh, to, to predatory animals either end up with a, a distinct fear or hate of said animals or a complete and utter fascination of them. Um, so I'm hoping you can share that story and also why it led to that positive passion as opposed to a negative um, I think when I was younger, I'm going to start with sort of a, a, a background as to how I perceive predatory threats. Uh, when I was younger, I was obsessed with sharks. And I used to walk around with these books about, you know, shark attacks. And, and although the rest of the world perceived shark attacks as a threat to their survival and would be afraid of seeing one in the ocean if they went in it, every time I saw a shark attack victim, I saw something out there in the world that was capable of putting us in our place, you know, curating our existence in some way. And, and I saw that there was something bigger than, than what our impact could be, that it could in some way show us that we're part of something larger than just us. And what has happened is that we're constantly trying to control all of those elements that could potentially show us that we are part of something as opposed to separate and above it. And this dominance hasn't proven to our benefit over the years. Um, if you look at the ways in which we have constantly taken over systems and completely curated it to the point where it no longer is, uh, in a way, fostering our existence on the planet because the resources are not enabling us, it's actually eroding. And it's eroding our fabric of existence, our economy, our way of life, our, our health, our welfare. And so for me, I, I took predatory threats in a way as, um, uh, as a positive 
control mechanism that would show us in some way that we are in a model that is about coexistence, that we all fit into this larger fabric of life. Um, and so when I had this experience in Barafu, I went into it knowing to some extent like camping in the wild would be involving coming in close contact with wildlife. Uh, and in Africa, that happens to be lions and cheetahs and leopards and just about everything else. Um, and going out, I wasn't entirely sure. The, the team didn't really prep me as to what to expect. And I didn't realize that we had no weapons on us to protect ourselves, that we only had our flashlights. Um, so here we are, a bunch of like, you know, researchers and uh, conservationists, uh, and some of them were visiting from Dom the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so they've seen a lot worse, I guess, and so they really were just, you know, uh, looking forward to some downtime in the Serengeti. Um, and so we all went out uh, late one evening, had a fantastic safari over there because we saw so many amazing sightings. Um, and then when we get there, we pitch tents, uh, and I happened to pitch a dud. And so somebody swapped my tent because um, mine didn't have the right poles and I had to call in. Like, it was really quite ridiculous. And so they're like, you know what, we'll help you out. Why don't you take the other tent? And this guy who traded with me was a veteran camper. So his tent happened to be a little to the periphery of the, the campsite. And so uh, we all started skewering our food for the evening, you know, cooking it over the, the rocks. And I was vegetarian at that point, which also uh, is why this event apparently transpired in the manner that it did, because the predators thought of me as prey because I ate vegetarian food. Uh, but I ate my squash and whatever other grilled vegetables and we had our sundowners and we peer into the distance to look and allocate an area for as our restroom for the evening. And when we find a when we shined a flashlight into the distance, we saw a pair of green eyes fixated on us and we were like, what is that? And we thought maybe it was a hyena or something, because you know hyenas always running around in the planet, especially after dark, after six PM, they start perceiving us as meat on feet and so we were looking around making sure and uh and then we saw it was a it was lioness and we flashed the we do a pan scan with a flashlight and we see six pairs of eyes fixated on us and they've been basically crouching and stealthily crawling for quite a while because at this point they were about 15 feet away from us and so we're like that's not good that's not good at all <laughs> and everybody was cracking up and like oh, this is just the worst case scenario they're probably going to pounce and attack us and we have no way of defending our campsite and we had what, like two jeeps amongst us uh, in which we had arrived. And so it was what our camp director's idea to get in the Jeep and herd the lines away like cattle. But they're cats and they think it's a tag, a game of tag. And so as we drive and, and steer them away from the campsite, we realize that, you know, they're sitting down because they realize we're not a threat to them. And so as, as we're moving them away, you know, a few of them would run in front of the car, but the others would sit on the periphery and wait for us to come and get them. And it took quite a while to get these lines away. So I'm just like trying to tell you how difficult it is to herd lines, um, herd cats. It really is like herding cats. Um, and it is as awful as people make it out to be. And so we got them away and then they promptly followed us back because they thought it was like, you know, cat and mouse. And so they followed us back to our camp and we had to take them out yet again. And we took them further away from camp. And this time we succeeded. We got back to our campsite and it was, there were no lines in sight. And so we were able to eat our dinner and go to bed. And I asked, I particularly asked the camp director at that point, uh, Rob, I was like, you know, is, is it going to be okay or should I sleep in the car? <laughs> and he said, yeah, oh, it should be fine. It should be fine. And then he was like, well, and he took a pause and I was like, I should have listened to that well, you know, and I did it. So I go to bed and I wake up in a mad sweat about one in the morning and I wasn't entirely sure why. 
Because at that point, you're going through all the symptoms you could possibly contract being in the wilderness, you know, anything from tick fever to a snake bite. And so I'm going through my pulse rate and like trying to figure out am I running a temperature and all these things. And it's still dark in my tent. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'm in a panic because I overslept, which is typical of me. And I missed the wake up call and everybody's abandoned me. And this is just my worst fear of being abandoned in the wild. And so I turned my phone on to see what time it is. It's about one something, you know, and one nineteen, I think. And I and I remember the phone lighting up my tent. And I see then that there's a shadow that swivels across the top of my tent and it's the lion's tail of whiplash. And I just come into into an awake mode. You know, that's when I completely switch on and I realize what is happening and then the next thing I noticed is that I was too tall for my tent so my head and my feet were kind of protruding through the tent fabric and and I could feel something like you know just against the, the top of my head and it was breathing me in and rubbing up against me and I and, and then I heard a very low rumble you know the kind of rumble that just makes your skin crawl like everything is your, all your hairs all your hackles are raised and you're just so alert and so aware of the fact that you're alive and breathing in that moment it may not be the next and I remember immediately just shriveling into the smallest ball possible inside my sleeping bag and I was so hot and so sweaty and my entire body was telling me to run out of there to get out of there but I knew I was outnumbered and and I thought maybe at that point because you'd start thinking every possible scenario like maybe if I look through the back flap I can see how many lines there are and I can figure out a way to get out of this and also, I briefly called out to all of the other campers, thinking maybe they were playing pranks on me because the boys were playing pranks on me all evening long, and I get easily spooked. And so I was like, "Well, nobody's responding." And and when you hear the rumble, you know for sure that's a line. You, your body knows it before you do, you know. And so at that point, I I tried to put my hand on the back flap to open the the tent, and and then then I felt something warm breathing up against my hand. So there was a lion sleeping on the back of my tent as well. And I was like, okay, this is happening. <laughs> I just need to process. And so I'm like, my mind is racing everywhere. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, I hope I make it to 6 a.m. Because I had just read in Anthony Sinclair's book that if you make it past 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, they stop hunting you. You know, you just have to survive predators until 7 or 8 in the morning. And so it's like, if I make it to 6 a.m., then it's only two hours of daylight. I know most of the other people will be awake. At least that's something, you know. And I'm just breathing and praying for 6 a.m. and still two. And so at this point, I'm like, what do I do? And then I'm like, my, my heart rate was through the roof. And cats have a way of reading you. They can just sense, you know, your pulse. They can sense your chemistry. They can sense everything that's going on in your body. They can read you. And so I knew I was behaving like prey. And it was only really a matter of time before their curiosity got peaked and, and got the better of them. And they tried to find ways to enter my space. Um, but to most lions, uh, they're not very familiar with tents. And so they think of it as sort of like a human smelling rock, you know, a fabric rock. Um, and so that's what I was told, at least early in the evening. So I, I knew I was to some degree safe. But even then, it's just like, you know, I'm a claw away uh, from from being killed. So if they accidentally decided to paw my tent, I would have been done for. And so I'm at this point, I'm just like, the only thing I can do is control my breathing. And so I start breathing, and then I realize the lines are breathing differently for me. And so then I think, maybe if I sink my breath to the lion's breath, then I would be breathing at the same pace at the same rate. And that would calm my heart down, and I would be breathing like a predator, and hopefully they'll think I'm one of them. You know? <laughs> it's just like, it was just a theory at that point. And so then I started breathing. I was like, and, I, and then after a certain while, 
it got to be sort of a hypnotic high because you breathe when the line breathing is so close to that, yet you're so alive and you're so connected to this being that's right, that's just separated by a hair for me. And it's like the most intense experience I've ever had, but I've never felt more in touch with my life and being alive and being present and being with my breath, with every breath. Um, and I think we take our breath for granted, you know, and we take life for granted. And not just ours, we take life in general for granted and we devalue life and we prioritize death. And we're so obsessed with death in this culture, in this day and age, that all we perpetrate is death and destruction. Um, and our entire paradigm is skewed and flawed for that one reason, because we keep perpetuating mechanisms that will empower death over life. Things that die have more value. Even artists, once they die, their art has more value. It's ridiculous. You know, I think it's kind of a, a weird way in which we've come to perceive things that scarcity, exclusivity that is created by something going off the face of the planet forever is something to be valued. And that's not the case at all. Because if you were to look at a line, if you were to make that moment of eye contact, because later in that same trip, you know, I, I was out with a line project and they taught me this one amazing thing. If you lock eyes with a line and it perceives you as a threat, even if you're on foot, if it, if it perceives you as a threat, it, this is with any big cat. If you lock eyes with this cat and you blink consciously, they, they blink back at you, they imitate your behavior, and then they stop perceiving you as a threat. They look away and they do their own thing. You know, they disengage and stop thinking of you as something that's going to come out there to attack them and vice versa. But until you're able to even have that level of consciousness to be able to connect to this animal, you need to take a moment of your time to think beyond yourself, to be able to connect to anything beyond yourself. But we're such a self-obsessed culture that everything is about just us. And, and even when we do think about conservation uh, and reason dialogues, including Radiolab's episode about the rhino hunter, you know, Corey Knowlton, which has been a very controversial conversation, um, and it's unfortunate that he was circumstantially driven to bidding on this black rhino. But that doesn't mean he has to shirk his responsibility thereafter. And the thing with, with hunting and trophy hunting especially is the fact that you're going after the biggest rack, the biggest mane. You're going after animals that are the sort of the winners of the genetic lottery. You know, they've survived and, and manifested in a way where they're very, very magnificent creatures that are the strongest, that are that have outcompeted other predators in their in their species that have and, and outside of the species as well they've outcompeted diseases you know so they they're the ones that should have offspring in play and when they kill Cecil for instance he lost his entire genetic lineage you know because the next male lion that comes into that pride would kill all of his cubs and drive away any sign of Cecil's contribution to the lion population in that park and so when we're looking at you know, and, and there's so many other issues with it too. Like they're skewing the genetic population also in disfavor of males because they're always hunting things that have the biggest horn, whatever, and that's usually on the males. And so you're losing animals that are going to help a species propagate for the next generation. So trophy hunting definitely does not ensure the survival of a species. And it's not a conservation measure. So if the hunters were really looking for the welfare of that species, they wouldn't be protecting it in the manner that they are. They wouldn't be hunting them down in the manner that they are, particularly. So I think, I mean, it's a very flawed argument that they would go after that. And so one of the other things I would say is that you can't ensure life. You can't ensure a future for life through death. And that's been time and again the paradigm as well. If you were to look at the BP oil spill, you know, we're fueling life with death. That's the problem with hydrocarbon uh, fuel sources. Like when you're looking at oil, coal, you're fueling it with fossils. So obviously that's going to only perpetrate more death. 
long as we look at the whole thing in a different manner, in a way, in a system that would automatically domino effect more life into place as opposed to more death into place, that's the only way we're going to be able to have a sustainable, healthy paradigm where we are ensured our future. And unfortunately for us, we're not separate from life on Earth. You know, we are part of it and we are another animal. So we do have to understand that our survival is inextricably connected to the survival of other species. And including what's happening in the oceans. If you were to look at plankton, you know, we owe one out of two breaths to the ocean to, to plankton, uh, except the amount of pollution and distress and stressors that we're causing in the marine ecosystem is basically reducing plankton blooms on an annual basis. And this is reducing the amount of oxygen that's going to be available to us in the coming years. And yet we think that none of our actions have repercussions and we can keep going about business as usual when we simply cannot afford to anymore. And there's an amazing article that just came out today as well that Paula Kahumbu authored, um, which talks about the fact, you know, when we're looking for protecting animals, like at some point, we need to be able to prioritize wild for its own sake, that certain areas with certain animals come before us and not everything, not every square inch of this planet can be about us and only us. And that it evolved, that needs an evolution of our consciousness. That needs to be that needs to come from a bigger place, from a a new set mindset that has thus far not really existed, especially on a mass scale. And whether or not we're able to achieve that, you know, that's up to how things unfold in the coming days. And I'm not going to predict for a future that hasn't happened yet. And I'm not going to be a pessimist and say that you know we're incapable of evolving. Um, so I, I'm hopeful and I work from an optimistic space and I see, you know, the indomitable human spirit and the kind of things we're capable of achieving when we come together. So I always believe in us to be able to do better thing to do, to do one better than we did yesterday. And that's why I, I keep, keep at what I do. You know, I don't lose faith or at least I don't. And even if I do, I, I usually find a way back to doing what I do. So. Well, and speaking of what you do, how did how did you get involved with the National Geographic uh, Explorers Program? Where did the, that connection sort of happen, and what what has it meant for your uh, for your work and your message? Um, so Nat Geo happened because a couple of years back I gave a talk at the Wilderness Congress in Spain, Salamanca, and it was at Wild Temp. Uh, it was hosted by the Wild Foundation, and it's a massive global symposium. There were delegates and everyone present. Um, I had to go up on. I think it was day two, um, and it was pretty funny because I got so nervous when I went up there that I cried through my entire talk, and not because I was nervous about the content, but because I was still so emotionally raw about what I was speaking about, which is wildlife trafficking, um, that I just came apart, and and I, I was so embarrassed by the time I finished my talk that I couldn't make eye contact with the audience anymore. I just hung my head low and then and resumed my my seat on the stage. And apparently I'd received a standing ovation, but I, you know, when you're so like shut down because you've been so emotional that you don't want to be available anymore, I just completely shut down at that point. And so when people came to the stage thereafter to talk to me, uh, and one of them happened to be uh, the vice president at, at National Geographic, uh, John Francis, and um, he asked me to come by, a, I think a week and a half later when I was back in New York to come out to DC and give a talk to all the Nancio staff. And when I did that, they were like, you know, we would love to make you a part of the family. And so it was, it was, you know, done, it was, it happened organically and, uh, spontaneously. So 
and it's mo- most of my life has un- unraveled. It's like it's always been, you know, elements of surprise and just random things happening at random moments. And so this is one of them. And it's been amazing for my career because I feel like it's such an, a tremendous platform. Um, they're such a great support system. Um, I really, I really, not just in terms of the other explorers and the network it opens up to you, and the passion with which all these individuals live their lives, uh, which is so deeply inspiring for me. I always draw from that. They're sort of my muses. But also, you know, just the staff itself at National Geographic, they've been such a tremendous help. Uh, anytime I do any any project, I always run things by them to see, you know, if there's something more I should be considering or people that they can put me in contact with. Um, you know, they, they've done a tremendous lot. Even before I got the Explorer status, they gave me a grant to go out to Africa to shoot images. Uh, for my Beyond the Frame in Focus project. So I, I think they've been very keen on uh, participating in every vision I've had for wildlife conservation. And for that, I'm very grateful. And currently, they've just restructured their organization to also have a focus, particularly on wildlife protection, the oceans, and world heritage sites. So I think that makes us have a greater understanding of how we're going to be channeling our efforts going forward. As, as a family and that's really what it comes down to it feels like family it's like the mothership <laughs> um and a lot of young people uh obviously listen to our podcast and um i i i feel i'm sort of in the same boat as you in terms of getting involved with wildlife i was a journalist for over 10 years and i just kind of naturally moved from writing about crime and politics into writing about the environment and wildlife and then the opportunity with the fur bears came up and my life just kind of shifted in that direction um but there's a lot of young people who are trying to decide who they are where they're going uh as you know academically there's all sorts of pressure to make decisions about future but a lot of them are so passionate about wildlife and so passionate about the environments. What advice do you give to these people who are at that point in their lives where they're saying, where do I want to go? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it will come to you. You just need to st- stick with it. And it comes after a while. I mean, it's not an immediate understanding that you you arrive at. So if you're good at something and you need to identify what your skill sets are, you know, whether you're a talented photographer or filmmaker, like what are you most passionate about? And you put what your ideal life scenario should be. You know, what do you want to be doing with your life or how do you want to contribute? What do you love doing most? What makes you happy? And once you figure those aspects out and it comes with you figuring who you are as well um, and you will find ways in which you'll be able to connect that particular set of things that make you who you are with what you want to do and how you want to contribute to the wildlife conservation movement. Um, And it's just finding that unique overlap between what you bring to this dialogue and how that's distinguished from every other photographer and artist and journalist and whoever is doing whatever they're doing. And you have something unique to contribute, so you shouldn't devalue what you would bring to that environment it's it's just you know you'll find your niche and you'll be able to fill that so i think it's just a, a matter of uh, giving it time and and moving past that self-doubt because i went through a whole year where it was just hell i was eating out of my savings um i had i had no idea as to how to monetize what i was capable of doing i had no idea as to you know how, whether it would have impact whether it would be needed um and then being, you know, constantly riddled by questions from family and friends who didn't see how and why I would make a sudden jump in my life um, and didn't see value in it sometimes. 
And so you have to move past all of that. And then that coupled with your self-doubt, you know, in your own abilities and whether you're able to make that transition, it's a tough, it's a tough leap of faith. Um, and once you get through that initial phase of just not knowing, <laughs> you get to a better place where you don't know, but you, you, you feel like, you know, it'll unravel when it does and it'll come to you when it should. And you just make peace with the fact that you'll never quite know. And no one really knows where their life is going and how it's going to shape. But most people preach as if they do have a formula for success and they've figured it all out. But no one knows what they're quite going to get the next day, you know, and we are all dealing with the hands we get dealt. And so I think it's just a matter of figuring out what makes you happy and finding your calling. And that takes as long as it takes. So be patient with yourself and, and, want, and, and stay with what you want to do. You know, don't give up on yourself. Quitting is the only way in which it comes to an end. But if you don't quit on your passion, your what makes you happy, your hope, uh, then you don't you don't stop. You know, you keep fighting till you figure it out. To find out more about Asher J's work, visit her website at asherj.com. To book your seat for the 2015 Living with Wildlife Conference, visit furbeardefenders.com/events. That's the show for this week. I'd like to thank Asher for joining us as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.